From PRI, this is an encore edition of Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Studies are finding concerning levels of toxicants in feminine hygiene products and paper diapers. Some of these chemicals can interfere with the nervous system and can lead to potentially cognitive and behavioral problems. Outside of the reproductive system, almost any endocrine system that you can think of, these chemicals have been shown to have a negative impact. Also a black woman's journey to reclaim a lost part of her culture and take up farming. Contrary to popular belief, black and brown folks do want to farm. Um, And this was something that just surprised me because I thought I was just a weirdo out here. I was going to start this farm with my family, grow food, you know, provide it to those who need it most in the community, and that was going to be it. We have that and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. From PRI and the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios at the University of Massachusetts, Boston, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Feminine hygiene products and paper diapers may expose women and children to dangerous chemicals, a study based at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign has found. The study came in the wake of a 2017 class action lawsuit joined by more than 15,000 women in South Korea. They allege the maker of Lillian sanitary pads caused health problems, including skin rashes, painful cramping, and irregular bleeding. The Illinois team sampled a variety of pads and paper diapers and found phthalates and volatile organic compounds, or VOCs, in every brand they studied. Professor Jody Flaws is part of the research team, and we asked her to share some of the findings and how the research was done. She spoke with Living on Earth's Bobby Bascom. So we went about the research by gathering different brands of sanitary pads and in a scientific manner taking samples from each of these different brands and then using those samples to measure the levels of volatile organic chemicals that were in each of the different brands. And we looked both at what's in the brand as well as what was in the air surrounding the packaging of the brands. Mm -hmm. And what we found were that All of the brands did contain some levels of volatile organic chemicals, and the levels varied quite a bit by brand, and the types of chemicals that were in the brands also varied. And um, what are some of the health implications of exposure to volatile organic compounds? It depends on the level of exposure and the route of exposure, but many of these compounds have been shown to have reproductive effects, such as abnormal menstrual cyclicity. They've been shown to have problems with allergic reactions, skin irritation, some issues with changing the levels of women's sex steroid hormone levels as well. And you also looked at phthalates. Can you tell me about that? Yes, so we looked at phthalates because phthalates in many studies now have been shown to be reproductive toxicants. In both animals and humans, phthalates can alter hormone levels, they can reduce fertility, they can cause some problems with the ovaries and the uterus. And in our study, we did find that these brands that we selected all had measurable levels of phthalates. And phthalates are an endocrine disruptor. Can you tell me a bit about the concerns associated with that? Yes, so endocrine disrupting chemicals are chemicals that can interfere with any aspect of hormones, either the production of hormones, the action of hormones, the function of hormones in the body. And some of these chemicals can interfere with the nervous system and can lead to 
potentially cognitive and behavioral problems. Many of these chemicals have been shown to interfere with thyroid function and lead to problems with metabolism. And they've also been shown to affect the pancreas. So there could be some concern about diabetes. Mm. And several of the chemicals are what we call obesogens, which have been linked to obesity. And so outside of the reproductive system, almost any endocrine system that you can think of, these chemicals have been shown to have a negative impact. Mm-hmm. And sort of the insidious thing about phthalates, I mean, the dose doesn't make the poison. So it's a very specific exposure that can cause problems. Correct. And actually, a big concern with a lot of these endocrine disrupting chemicals is that the dose doesn't make the poison. It's not always the higher doses that we need to be concerned about. Sometimes the really low doses can have the most profound effects. So it really does matter what the dose is. And we can't just assume because it's a low dose that it's a safe dose. And the people using these products, I mean, we're talking about babies and women of reproductive age. Those are some of the most vulnerable people in our population. Can you talk to me a bit about how chemical exposure in those groups is a concern? It's a concern in adult women for a couple of reasons. So one, if the chemicals are in the sanitary pads, there's potential for chronic exposure. Because if you consider that most women will have a menstrual period at least once a month, and they're wearing these for several days of that month from puberty until the time of menopause. And so there's potential for long-term exposure. The other issue is that the pads are placed in the genital area, which is a very sensitive area, and the skin there is quite thin, so it's pretty easy to absorb volatile organic chemicals from that area. Mm-hmm. And with babies, I would say there is a concern because baby skin is very sensitive and very thin, and it's easier to absorb chemicals through um, baby skin than probably some adult skin, depending on the, the age. And so there's concern about there being chemicals that are right in the areas which would be sensitive in the babies as well. And why might these chemicals be found in these products to begin with? What's their function? So these products, both diapers and sanitary pads, are made to be absorbent. And so some of these chemicals might be in the materials that are used to make products more absorbent. These chemicals can also be found in plastics. And so some of the containers or packaging, they're, they're made out of plastic. And some of the barriers include some of these plastic linings, which could also contain the chemicals. Now, phthalates are in a lot of products. They're in plastic toys and things that babies might put in their mouths. How did the levels that you found in these products compare to other ways that people are exposed to phthalates? So it it runs a quite a big range. So depending on the phthalate, we've got levels that are quite different. But in general, some of these levels that we're detecting are much higher than from exposure through other routes. So one of the particular phthalates, it's about a 6,000-fold increase in exposure than, than what has been documented in other routes of exposure. So I think the levels can can vary quite a bit depending on the type of exposure. 
but a lot of these were seeing higher levels than have been reported from other types of products or exposures. We were actually pretty surprised to find such a large range. To us, that meant that the products are all being manufactured, possibly in different ways or packaged in different ways. But having said that, given the abnormal dose response curves that happen with some of these chemicals, we can't just always assume that a low amount is better. What we need to figure out is which levels of chemicals could be harmful and then try to make sure that we could design products that either don't have the chemicals at all or have levels of chemicals that are not going to cause harm. You said there's a very wide range in your study. Some brands have relatively low levels and others very high. Why didn't you name which brands are more concerning? Partially because it would get into some legal issues that we're not prepared to handle. And also some scientific journals actually have restrictions on writing about specific products. Also, I think my colleagues and I wanted to err on the side of being a little bit cautious in that this is probably the first study to really look at this issue in a scientific manner. We want other people to test these products and be certain before we say something is, you know, bad because we don't want to put a certain product in jeopardy or, or make a certain product sound really good when we've only got one study now measuring these things. Well, what can you say to someone who's listening right now and concerned about what products they're using? If you're standing in the aisle in the grocery store and um, trying to choose a brand, choose a product, what should they be looking for? What should they be doing? So I think that one thing they could do is look possibly to make sure that when they buy the products to maybe open up the wrapper and let the product air out for a while because these chemicals are volatile. And so it is possible that you could get rid of some of it by just letting the product air out. Mm -hmm. The other thing is maybe if it were me, I would be choosing products that might not be the most absorbent products. In the Korean TV report, what was happening is women there were choosing products that were super, super, super absorbent and had gels in them. And so I think those products are probably on the tail end of the spectrum where they caused a lot of problems. And so picking products that don't contain those kind of gels and don't have a strong smell. And I mean, there's other products. There's the menstrual cup. And then, of course, there's um, reusable diapers. Are those things that you think people should look into? Yes, absolutely. As far as the babies, I would say that cloth diapers would be a really healthy alternative to looking at that. And yes, you're absolutely right. The menstrual cup is, is an option for women to consider. Jody Floss, professor of comparative biosciences at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign. Speaking with Living on Earth's Bobby Bascom. According to the Korean Herald on December 7th of 2018, Procter & Gamble Korea decided to withdraw their sanitary pad Whisper from Korean shelves due to the controversy. But U.S. press representatives for Procter & Gamble have declined to comment. There is a link on our webpage to an article in the Korean Herald that names some of the other companies investigated by regulators in Korea. Sanitary pads and tampons are considered medical devices in the U.S. and come under the purview of the Federal Food and Drug Administration, but we were unable to get comment from the FDA.
If you like what you hear on Living on Earth, please join us with a gift of $5 or more. Just go to LOE.org and click on Donate at the top of the page. And thank you. The deadly chytrid fungus is responsible for dramatic declines in more than 500 species of frogs and other amphibians, according to a recent study published in Science. And as many as 20% of those amphibians now are assumed to be extinct. Until recently, Siwankas water frogs were among those on the brink of extinction. Just one male, named Romeo, was living in a lab in Bolivia, assumed to be the last of his species. But researchers recently found five more of these frogs in a cloud forest in the mountains of Bolivia. They took one of the females, named her Juliet, and brought her to meet Romeo. Hoping they won't be star-crossed lovers, the researchers are now breeding Romeo and Juliet in an attempt to save the species. Sophia Baron Mavayen is head of conservation breeding for the Cairo Center at the Natural History Museum in Cochabamba, Bolivia. She spoke with Living on Earth's Ainsley O'Neill about how the matchmaking is coming along. Tell us a little bit of the backstory. How did Romeo and Juliet meet? Uh, first, uh, Romeo uh, was in Sente Caira since 2009, so that means 10 years he was alone. And we thought it was the last species. So we create this project to go to look for a mate. That's how we found uh, Juliet on uh, December 2018. And that's how they are together now. And so they had their first date. How do you set up the first date for a frog? Is there mood music? Are there low lights? (laughs) Yeah, first, it's really important for, uh, for amphibians that the water quality has to be perfect. All the parameters has to be fer- perfect for the, the species. Why? Because the, the, exactly this species, the Wenka's water frog, is an aquatic frog. So they breed and exchange all the ions through the skin. So that's why the water is so important. So first we need to check that the water has to be perfect. And then the temperature as well. And then it's really interesting because all amphibians around the world, they reproduce. They know that it's breeding season because of the rain. So we install like a rain uh, system in the water that helps to, helps to realize for the frogs to be in the breeding season. So first we did all these things, we prepare and then we put it together. The day was really amazing. For me, I was super excited. All the team was really excited because when we put Romeo... Together with Juliet, we record the first call. So Romeo called for the first time uh, with a mate. The last call we record, it was in 2017, so two years ago. But now we register the, this call. They are looking for a mate. So it's the courtship call. It was really amazing. And it's super loud and it's the first record for this species. I'm glad to hear that the date was going well. And since the first time Romeo has been with another of his species in such a long time, in 10 years, how was he acting on the date? Was he, was he romantic? Was he nervous? Yeah, he looked a little bit nervous. 
the beginning, when, but then he looked at Juliet and he swam directly to her to do the amplexus. Amplexus is the mating embrace position for frogs. He swam really fast into her and he started doing also a really funny dance we called the twinkly toes. He moved his toes like in a dance, like he was shaking his toes while he was in amplexus. So that was also something new for us. So he was a little bit shy and then he directly went uh, with Juliet, so he was super happy, and uh, uh, Juliet as well. What is your favorite part about taking care of these frogs? For me, it's really funny to give them food because the behavior is really fascinating. The frogs catch the worms with their, their front legs, making a forward mov- movement. And, um, and sometimes the worms escape or the frogs cannot catch. It's like a little bit um, silly for me because they don't catch it immediately. Super funny to watch. But when Romeo was alone in the aquarium, he ate immediately the worm or the isopod. But now since Juliet is with him, he uh, leaves the worms and the isopods for her. It's really interesting. That's also new for us. We never seen it before. So it's something interesting. And how have Romeo and Juliet been in the days after their first date? Well, they were trying amplexus a lot of times. The longest amplexus was 15 minutes. Um, I hope they are going to lay eggs soon. I'm really excited to see the eggs because we don't know how many eggs they put. We don't know where they put it, where they lay the eggs, under the rocks or between rocks or just in the surface of the aquarium. We don't know. It's something new for us. So we are also really um, excited to see it. What would happen if Romeo and Juliet don't get along romantically? Oh, we have a lot of options. Juliet and Romeo are not the only individuals of this species. We have uh, four more individuals. That means two more couples. So our option B is to try with the other couples, mix Romeo with the other frog, with the other two females, or the other male mixed with Juliet. And yeah, we have a lot of options. And yeah, I'm really happy for the conservation of these species. I'm pretty sure they are going to reproduce. Sophia, thank you so much for taking the time. Oh, thank you, everybody. And keep in touch for the news from Romeo and Juliet. Sophia Baron Lavayen spoke with Living on Earth's Ainsley O'Neill. We recently checked with the researchers, and the good news is the frog couple is happily living together, though so far, no polywogs. This land was made for you and me. As part of our occasional series on U.S. public lands, this week we bring you a national park from Washington State, the North Cascades. An owl joins a chorus of other birds at Big Beaver Valley in the northern end of the park. The North Cascades is one of the least visited of the U.S. national parks. Perhaps names like Mount Fury, Poltergeist Pinnacle, and Forbidden Peak keep the crowds at bay. But despite its name, the beauty of Desolation Peak has captured many hearts, including that of the beat poet Jack Kerouac and, more recently, Saul Weisberg, founder and executive director of the North Cascades Institute. He joins us now from Bellingham, Washington. Saul, welcome to Living on Earth. Thanks. Thanks for having me. So for someone who's never been to North Cascades National Park, how would you describe it? Well, tucked away in northwest Washington is this amazing place of 
jagged mountains, glaciers, mighty rivers, big trees, incredible wildflower meadows. It's just, it's a special place. It's what the Northwest used to look like. Big cedar, hemlock, Douglas fir forests. And there's not a lot of it left. And some of the best of it's left inside of, deep inside of North Cascades National Park. So the North Cascades National Park is one of only three national parks in the United States that we share some territory with Canada. There's Voyagers, which is up in the Boundary Waters areas there of Minnesota. There's Glacier National Park and North Cascades. What makes North Cascades different from those parks? Well, one of the things that's unique about the park is that it's in the midst of this huge, wild ecosystem. And that ecosystem stretches in northwestern Washington, covers about 70 miles east to west along the Canadian border. The ecosystem is about 13 million acres. Seven million of the acres of that are protected public lands on both sides of the border. North Cascades National Park, three national forests, and then provincial parks in, in B.C., and the park itself is only about six, 700,000 acres, but it's really the heart of that wild ecosystem. So it's the largest area of protected public lands across the whole U.S.-Canada border. Very few roads go into the park itself. You have to get off on the trail. You have to climb or canoe the rivers to really get into that. And some people, climbers in particular, will access the park coming in from the north, driving around and then hiking in through British Columbia. As I understand it, North Cascades is one of the least visited uh, of our national parks. Why do you suppose not so many people come to North Cascades? Well, part of it's the obvious answer that it's more remote. It takes more time to get to. When you're in downtown Seattle, you can see Mount Rainier and you can see the Olympics across Puget Sound. You don't see the North Cascades until you get north. And I've had people tell me, well, North Cascades, that's somewhere up near Alaska, isn't it? And these are folks in Seattle who could get there in three hours. That's part of it. The other part of the low visitation is sort of an artifact of boundaries. The park complex itself is made up of the National Park, Ross Lake National Recreation Area, and the Lake Chelan Recreation Area. And most of the visitors are in those two recreation areas, which hug the lakes and the one highway that crosses the range. And to get in the park, you've got to get off that road. And I think there's still only... Aside from the main highway, I think there's only six miles of paved road in the park. I, I could have that wrong, but it means that you've got to work to get into the park itself. Indeed. Now, when it comes to glaciers, of course, Glacier National Park is famous for glaciers, but the North Cascades, I gather, you know, you have more. A lot more, yeah. Over 300 active glaciers. Like all the glaciers, they're shrinking, some more rapidly than others. I was a climbing ranger in the park from 1979 to 1986, and you can see the difference pretty much everywhere you look. By late summer, areas that were glaciated now have just summer snowpack. There's areas where in the early to mid-80s where we would go into some place and we would find instead of a glacier, we would find a valley with a lake in it. And so it's been happening for a while, but it's really been accelerating recently. And we've seen the same thing in terms of wildlife, where marmots and pikas are going up in elevation. And at some point, those species, as the glaciers leave and the climate warms, essentially fall off the top of the mountains. They, there's no place for them to go because they are dependent upon snowpack for their livelihood. So talk to me about your favorite places in the park. You're a climber, so I imagine there's some really steep mountains. But, but tell me, what are, what are your favorite parts there? 
I've never been to a place that didn't speak to me in some way if I spent enough time there. But I must admit that the Picket Range, which is some of the most rugged, most alpine, steep, scariest part of the mountains, is a particular favorite. It's one of those places where you'd plot your route, usually spend a day or two just hiking to get up into the mountains. So you'd be hiking up deep, low elevation valleys. And then you'd camp and you'd be looking at the route ahead through binoculars and just go, there's no way. It looks, <laughs> like, it looks like you're looking at the gates of Mordor. And I just love that, a wilderness that is that wild and uh, makes you feel that small. Well, the North Cascades National Park has some pretty foreboding names to it. You've got desolation, despair, fury. What's with all the doom and gloom? Yeah, and you left out Torment and a few others. It shows you how the early white settlers and miners and, and trappers saw the place. For the native peoples, it was home. But to the people who came in there and overwintered for the first time, it was a foreboding place. The days are short. In the valleys, you might never see direct sunlight in the winter because it's just creeping along behind the mountains. And it's cold, and there's a tremendous amount of rainfall. And so it just wasn't a happy place for folks who hadn't lived there for a long time. And it's interesting because a place like Desolation Peak, which is very hard to access most of the year when there's a lot of snow there, in the summer, it's a beautiful, open, gorgeous forest with lush meadows of wildflowers. I mean, it's a heavenly place to camp. Now, Jack Kerouac famously spent a couple of months camped out at Desolation Peak, calling the landscape, one of the most beautiful he'd ever seen. Now, you yourself have studied Kerouac and other other poets, beat poets, nature poets. In fact, you do poetry yourself. Mm-hmm. So how does poetry help you connect to the park? Poetry is how I slow down and pay attention. So when I'm hiking, I've always got a small notebook in my pocket, and I'm just jotting down an image or a thought. I call them field notes. And then gradually over time, they kind of build and some build themselves into poems and some never do. But it's, um, I often find myself when I'm out looking out either at a spectacular landscape or maybe deep in the forest, just watching the raindrops cling to the branches and listening to the nuthatches in the trees. But it, it slows me down and makes me feel that I'm there. So to wrap things up, we'd love to hear one of your poems uh, from your collection. It's called Headwaters. Please, if you could read that for us now. Headwaters. With cupped hands I bow and drink, each day a different stream, many times from the same river, and once the sea. Well, we certainly are all connected, aren't we? Saul Weisberg is founder and executive director of the North Cascades Institute, and uh, perhaps you could call him the super docent of North Cascades National Park. Saul, thanks so much for taking time with us today. Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure to talk about one of my favorite places. The United States has long been a place for political refugees to seek safety and put down roots, in some cases, literally. In Comer, Georgia, a community garden called The Neighbor's Field is helping refugees work through their trauma by working the land. Producer Sean Powers has our story. It's a hot Saturday afternoon in Comer, Georgia. 
Moopaw is feeding her chickens, hens, goats, and ducks. There's even a donkey. You could say they're kind of like her babies. She is one of the many refugees at the neighbor's field who fled violence and persecution in Myanmar. That's the country formerly known as Burma. Mupaw tells me about her life before coming to the United States. She grew up in Myanmar and recalls living in fear of the Burmese soldiers. She says they'd force her family to carry food and other supplies. Gardening at the neighbor's field, she says, provides some relief from those painful memories. Garden here, we forget the war. We forget the war. Sometimes we remember the father. Her, my father go to the Burma soldier, kid, papa. She says Burmese soldiers kidnapped her father and used him as a porter to carry food for them. After leaving Myanmar, Mupa lived in a refugee camp in Thailand before moving to the United States with her husband and children. They relocated to the Atlanta area before settling here in Comer. Her son, Tahe Than, says moving to Comer was to satisfy Mupa's green thumb. My mom, where she lived in Burma or Thailand, she always liked to plant, uh, you know, work in the farm. So when she farm, that make her make her make her feel like she is home or something, you know, like I'm a home country, mother country or something, yeah. So that, that's why she, she moved to Kuma. The neighbor's field is a place for healing for Mupa. She comes here twice a day, except Sundays. Sundays, of course, are for church. She shows me around the garden. Yeah, me got it. Here, vegetable, here, grass. Me planted the cucumber this year. Yeah, sweet potato. Very beautiful. It's that beauty that takes Mupa back to memories of her family. She and her son, Tahe, say in Myanmar, farming for their family was a way of life. Uh, my grandmother the plenty the red peanut chili corn. Most of the time, everybody who lived in Burma, they were, they were uh, plants for order to be survive. And that's what makes this garden all the more meaningful. The vegetables growing here, they don't look like your typical produce that you would find at most supermarkets in the United States. That's because the seeds come from Myanmar and Thailand. With us on our garden tour is Rebecca Smith. She oversees the day-to-day operations at the neighbor's field. As we chat, we spot a pumpkin from Thailand. It's green, kind of stripy green and light yellow. How do you cook this, Mupa? Uh, garlic. Mm-hmm. Onion. Little chicken. <laughs> chicken? The flavors coming to life in Mupa's soil are just a small part of the pie. There are two dozen plots of land at the neighbor's field that are being rented by refugees from Myanmar. For a large plot, it's $100 a year. Rebecca Smith says it's incredible to see how working the farm helps build community. What's the most surprising to me is, I mean, their gardening abilities are just amazing, but how people can go and walk through our woods here and they know plants that we can eat that I never knew were edible. I mean, they're just amazing foragers. They can figure out how to cook everything and make it taste good. And it's just stuff that we think are weeds. 
like sometimes they're out people will be out here just butchering a pig for a celebration or Mupa's out here feeding her chickens and people in the garden and you just feel like you're in a different world, not in Comer, Georgia. It's a world that brings healing. For Living on Earth, I'm Sean Powers in Atlanta. That story comes to us courtesy of the Bitter Southerner podcast. Coming up, getting more black and brown folks back to the land. That's just ahead here on Living on Earth. Keep listening. Support for Living on Earth comes from the Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation and from a friend of Sailors for the Sea, working with boaters to restore ocean health. Leah Penniman is an activist working towards environmental, racial, and food justice through her work at Soulfire Farm, a collective of 10 black, brown, and Jewish farmers. Their goal is to dismantle racism within the food system while reconnecting people of color to the earth. Leah has a new book called Farming While Black, Soulfire Farm's Practical Guide to Liberation on the Land. In it, she describes her journey as a woman of color reclaiming her space in the agricultural world while providing a comprehensive guide for others who may want to follow her path. Welcome to the show, Leah. Thanks so much for having me. Tell me a little bit about your journey falling in love with nature and farming and and how it has led you to create your book, Farming While Black. Well, nature was my only solace and friends growing up in a rural white town. Our family was, you know, one of the only brown families, if not the only in the entire town. So we we were subjected to a lot of harassment and assault and abuse. And, and so in absence of peer connection, I went to the forest and found a lot of support and love in nature. And so when I became old enough to get a summer job, I was looking for something that kept alive that connection and was able to land a position at the Food Project in Boston, Massachusetts, where we grew vegetables to serve to folks without houses, to people experiencing domestic violence. And there was something so good about that elegant simplicity of planting and harvesting and providing for the community that was the antidote I needed to all the confusion of of the teenage years. So I've been farming ever since. Now, that's interesting. A lot of people say when they connect with nature, they connect with creatures. You connected with plants, it sounds like. Well, plants don't talk back right now. No, I feel <laughs> I feel connected to um, the whole ecosystem, but the plants are incredible. They have these secret lives that we can't see or even imagine. So take, for example, the trees in the forest, right? There's a underground network of mycelium that connects their roots and they're able to pass messages and warnings. They pass sugars and minerals to each other through this underground network and they collaborate across species, across family. And so, you know, when we tune into that, I think we learn something about what it is to be a human being and how to live in community with each other in a way that if we're not connected to nature, we sort of lose that deeper sense of who we are, who we're meant to be. Now, your book is not only a how-to guide for folks who are interested in pursuing a path similar to yours, but it also, well, it has some history, sociology, environmental lessons all wrapped up in this package. Why did you add those additional stories and information in with your guide rather than it having, well, having it be strictly a manual? Well, I wrote this book for my younger self. So after a few years of farming, I would go to these 
organic farming conferences and all the presenters were white. You know, all the books were written by white folks, mostly white men. And so I started to feel this real crisis of faith in my choice to become an organic farmer, like wondering as a brown skinned woman, whether I had any place in this movement if I was being a race trader and I should, you know, focus on housing issues, which are equally important or or some other issues. And so in putting together this book, I was really thinking about myself as a 16 year old and, and all the other returning generation of black and brown farmers who need to see that we have a rightful place in the sustainable farming movement that isn't circumscribed by slavery, sharecropping, and land-based oppression. That we have a many, many thousand year noble history of innovation and dignity on the land. So those anthropological pieces that uplift, you know, the raised beds of the Ovambo and the terraces of Kenya and the community supported agriculture of Dr. Watley, you know, those are to remind us that, you know, we've been doing this all along and we belong and we're standing on the shoulders of our ancestors. We're not trying to create something new right now. Um, I mean, aside from writing it for my younger self, I'm a super nerd. And so there was something that... You know, I had heard, for example, that Cleopatra was really into worms. And so casually, I'm telling this anecdote to youth who come to our farm, right? I'm like, oh, yeah, these worms, Cleopatra was into them. She was like into vermicomposting. But I wasn't super sure that that was true. And so in writing a book, you can't just write down anything you feel like writing. You know, you have to do research. And so this process of of digging through the literature and finding and verifying these stories about our people just satisfied this academic itch that I had. So more importantly, though, than my personal need, we have waiting lists for our black and brown farmer training programs many years long. And so I didn't want to be a gatekeeper anymore to this really important practical knowledge or the historical and psycho-spiritual knowledge. And so putting it in a book just lets a lot more folks have access to the things we've learned in over a decade of practice at Soulfire Farm. Wait a second, you have a waiting list of people who want to come to Soulfire Farm and learn how to do this? Right. Contrary to popular belief, black and brown folks do want to farm. And this was something that just surprised me because I thought I was just a weirdo out here. I was going to start this farm with my family, grow food, you know, provide it to those who need it most in the community. And that was going to be it. And I got a call our first year from this woman, Coffee Dixon in Boston, who said, you know, through tears, I just needed to hear your voice to know that it was possible for a woman like me to farm and that I wasn't crazy and that there's hope, right? And that was the first of thousands and thousands of phone calls and emails to come of folks saying, I need to learn to farm. I want to do it in a culturally relevant, safe space. I want to learn from people who look like me. And so we opened a training program and I posted on Facebook. It filled in 24 hours. So I'm open another one. It filled. And that's just the way it's been. It seems that We have realized as a generation that we left something behind in the red clays of Georgia and we want to get it back. And so uh, we're doing our best to respond to that call at Soulfire. Talk to me a little bit about how access or lack of access to healthy food can have an effect on a family, especially families of color. So we're living under a system that my mentor, Karen Washington, calls food apartheid. So uh, in contrast to a food desert, as defined by the U.S. Department of Agriculture, which is a high poverty zip code without supermarkets, right? A food apartheid is a human created system, not a natural system like a desert. It's a system of segregation that relegates certain people to food opulence and others to scarcity. And there are consequences to that, right? We see in black and brown communities 
a very high disproportionate incidence of diabetes, heart disease, obesity, cancer, even some learning disabilities and poor eyesight and mental illness can be linked to having access to hot Cheetos and Takis and blue drink, but not having access to those fresh, healthy fruits and vegetables that we really need to be healthy and also to be part of democracy, to do our civic duty. If I'm feeling sick or my body's too heavy or you know, I'm, I'm trying to just find something to eat. I'm certainly not going to be going down to City Hall and talking about how we need fair wages for farm workers or anything like that. So food is right now a weapon in our country when it really should be a basic human right. Talk to me about urban farming and how that can alleviate the food apartheid situations for some families. I'm all for urban farming. And I think we actually need to do more as a society to provide the technical support through the U.S. Department of Agriculture and other agencies so that urban farmers can be taken more seriously and provide a greater benefit for their communities. Folks who are growing food in cities are meeting the USDA definition of a $1,000 worth of product, are feeding their communities, are oftentimes doing that much more efficiently because there's no transportation hurdle to overcome. So I think it's really unfortunate that we don't often consider urban growers as farmers. By the way, one of the most intriguing sections of your book, Farming While Black, Soul Fire Farms, Practical Guide to Liberation on the Land, is this explanation of how you can clean up lead-contaminated soil, which you find in so many places in the urban environment. You have a very practical guide as to how you can use natural plants to chelate, that is, remove the lead from the soil, mm -hmm. so that it's safe to grow food there. I don't think I've seen that anywhere else. Mm. Well, that's deeply personal for me because in the same time period when my husband Jonah and I, uh, cleaning up soils, we'd bring our newborn with us. And we didn't know anything about lead in the soils at the time. And she got lead poisoning. When we went back and tested, we found around some people's homes, 11,000 PPMs. Now, the safe limit is 400 parts per million. So 11,000, that's a super toxic site. And these are people's yards where children are playing. So you know, our daughter's fine. But we started a project called Toxic Soil Busters to clean up that lead. And there's an incredible plant. It's an African origin plant called Pelargonium or scented geranium. And it's a hyperaccumulator. So you can plant it, uh, you acidify the soil, you plant it, and it will suck the lead out and, and store the lead in its body so then you can dispose of that plant in a safe place. And over months or years, depending how bad your situation is, you know, you have a, a healed soil. And that's so important because, you know, as black and brown folks, as poor folks, oftentimes we don't have access to prime bottomland soil. And so that doesn't mean actually giving up on the earth or giving up on self-sufficiency. We have to be able to restore degraded and marginal lands. You know, sometimes the sciences, especially that love of nature and the environment and pursuing a career in those fields can seem, well, rather taboo for people of color. Why do you think that is? And, and how do you think your, your book responds to this? It's heartbreaking for me, though not surprising, because what it really speaks to is the depth of the inherited trauma from the centuries of slavery, sharecropping, and tenant farming, to the point where just seeing a plant or seeing the soil is going to be a triggering experience for a lot of folks, you know, look at nature for really what it is. It's the scene of the crime, right? The nature is the scene of the crime, but she's not actually the crime. The way we try to address that is, well, a couple of ways. One is to, again, reach back beyond those 500 years to the 10,000 years of, of noble history on land and revive those stories and live into those stories. 
but it's also to confront the trauma head on. In your view, what have people of color lost by not having the farm as a possible place of family refuge? I was talking to an elder friend of mine, Donald Halfkenny, who is a civil rights veteran and was telling me stories about his time during Freedom Summer, registering people to vote in the South. And he was saying that, you know, they all stayed on Black farms, all these activists, and they were protected. The farmers, to prevent night riders from coming and attacking the activists, would cut down trees and put barriers across the only road that got you out to these rural areas to slow down or to, to impede um, members of the Ku Klux Klan. All the meetings, if, they, if you need your shoes fixed, you needed a meal, it was the Black farmers. And, and Mr. Hapkenny was saying that, you know, this was a clandestine network too, because then you'd see these same people that put you up in town the next day and they'd act like they didn't know you because they also had to protect their own safety. And so I think about that a lot, that there really would be no civil rights movements without Black farmers. And what do you think people of color lost when we lost contact with the land? Certainly not all folks of color, right? Right now, about 85% of our food in this country is grown by brown-skinned people who speak Spanish. And there's a whole history to why that is. But I would say, particularly for Black folks after the Great Migration, when 6 million of us you know, fled the racial terrorism of the South, I think we did leave behind a little piece of ourselves. And, you know, it's a belief in West African cosmology that our ancestors exist below the earth and below the waters. And by having contact with the earth, we receive their wisdom and guidance. And with the layers of pavements and steel and glass, the skyscrapers, it's harder to feel that contact. It's harder to have the generational wisdom. So my personal belief is that many of us go around with this nagging sense of emptiness that we can't quite name. And when folks come to Soul Fire and get their feet back on the earth, what I hear time and again is, I'm remembering things I didn't know that I forgot. When we own land, we also have power. We have autonomy. We have agency. When we depend on a system that hates us for our basic rights, our basic needs, we depend on a system that hates us for our food, our shelter, our meeting space, we're always in some way going to be beholden to that system. And so it limits our ability to resist, you know, folks half joking, but maybe not are always saying, well, thank God we have soul fire because when Armageddon comes or when such and such, we have a place to go and there'll be food and there'll be safety. Leah, how can farming and food be a healing and culturally restorative process for someone? Hmm. You know, so often as Black Americans, we're fed this myth that we don't have any culture. It was all lost in the transatlantic slave trade, we have no language, you know, we don't have a religion. So we just need to try to emulate the ways of Europeans. And, and the better we get at it, you know, the higher status we gain. And in using food and land as tools, we reconnect to a different uh, meter stick of success and belonging. And it's one that comes from our people. I mean, for example, just the other day, we're harvesting squash that we grew ourselves squash seed was a gift from the Taino people to the enslaved Black people of Haiti in exchange for the seed that we brought over hidden in our braids, which was the cow pea or the black-eyed pea. And so we, we took this squash seed as a gift from the Native people and we grew it. And, and for many years, the 
ones who called themselves masters, you know, the French did not even allow black people to eat this squash. We called it jumu. It was such a delicacy. It was uh, very tasty and, and smooth and sweet. So it was only prepared for white folks. After the successful revolution in 1804, we celebrate, our people celebrated by making the, the squash, the jumu soup. And every house made some, and you go from house to house and, and sip it and taste all the different recipes. And, and that's been a tradition every January 1st. How do you feel about organizations like yours, Soulfire Farms? How do you feel they're doing it, bridging this gap between people of color and reclaiming their birthright, really? Mm. How are we doing? I mean, I don't know if it's really for me to say because I I feel like we're in service to our ancestors and to our community. And so everything we do is because we've been asked to do it. But, you know, I can say for sure that everyone who's gone through our program has talked in some way about this being what it would feel like if we were free, about this being a calling home to not settling anymore for being less than our full selves, for this being a, a healing and repurposing. And we have, you know, last time we did a survey, you know, 86% of folks who graduated from our program have continued the work. So they're they're growing food or they're organizing for food justice. And that means the world to me because I really want to be not so much to expand and grow up as an organization, but really more like mycelium to grow out and figure out how to feed our alumni and other folks in the community who are doing projects that meet their local needs. And, you know, I think we're starting to see that. We're starting to see that resurgence. Leah Penniman's book is called Farming While Black, Soul Fire Farms Practical Guide to Liberation on the Land. Thanks so much for having me. is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Naomi Ehrenberg, Bobby Bascom, Paloma Beltran, Thurston Briscoe, Jenny Doring, Jay Feinstein, Marilyn Hajiameri, Don Lyman, Liz Malloy, Ainsley O'Neill, Jake Rigo, and Yolanda Omari. Tom Tiger engineered our show. Allison Lierstein composed our themes. You can hear us anytime at LOE.org, iTunes, and Google Play. And like us, please, on our Facebook page, PRI's Living on Earth. We tweet from at Living on Earth and find us on Instagram at Living on Earth Radio. I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from you, our listeners, and from the University of Massachusetts, Boston, in association with its School for the Environment, developing the next generation of environmental leaders, and from the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting strategic communications and collaboration in solving the world's most pressing environmental problems. Support also comes from the Energy Foundation, serving the public interest by helping to build a strong, clean energy economy. PRI Public Radio International.